how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're bottom. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to the Creative Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. Over the past 200-plus episodes, I've had the good fortune of speaking with dozens of screenwriters, actors, and directors, such as Aaron Sorkin, Mel Brooks, Carrie Fukunaga, Whitney Cummings, Michael Imperioli, and William Monaghan, among others. We've dissected ideas on story, character, filmmaking, habits, and various principles for creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also find several of these interviews on the Creative Screenwriting Magazine website, in addition to some that aren't available in audio, such as with Nick Kroll or Stephen Merchant. In addition to the podcast, also make sure to search for the new video essay series on YouTube, also called Creative Principles, where we take a deep dive into movies and television. Join millions of viewers for subjects like the 16 personalities expressed as characters, Did Home Alone, Rowan John Hughes' Career, The Greatest Movie Never Made, and How Jackie Chan Creates Perfection Through Failure, among many more. That's Creative Principles on YouTube. Husband and wife writing and directing team Aaron Gaudet and Gita Pulapil met while working at local television news. Despite being at competitive stations, they both despised local television news and wanted to find a more creative path to visual storytelling where they weren't forced to tell a story in 30 seconds. Together, they've got credits for documentaries like The Elephant Bath, The Gambling Man, Lifecasters, and features like Beneath the Harvest Sky, Queen Pins, and an upcoming film called Crook County. Their current project, Queen Pins, follows a pair of housewives who create a $40 million coupon scam. The surprisingly based on the true story stars Kristen Bell, Kirby Howe Baptist, Vince Vaughn, and Paul Walter Hauser. In this interview, they talk about their discovery process, feeling undervalued in the industry, how they conduct research as former journalists, advice on breaking in, and why every finished script is an asset to your career. Well, Aaron and I met in local television news and we worked for competitive stations. I worked for the local ABC station in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And, and I was at the yeah. Fox station. So we definitely yeah. took a different journey where yeah. she was an on-air reporter and my best friend ended up being her news photographer. Mm -hmm. And they would drive around all day and she would kind of talk about how... How much I hated local television news and <laughs> really wanted to find something else to do. I loved visual storytelling but i knew i wasn't in the right field right and i think he yeah. said something like oh you need to meet my friend aaron he he really hates his job as well and then we bonded over that mutual hatred for for yeah. television news yeah. and i had always wanted to make movies growing up in maine and just didn't feel like um there was an easy avenue and when i met mm -hmm. Gita, i asked her if she would want to pursue that together and yeah and we went into documentary first we made a feature-length documentary and some shorts and then moved into scripted features and kind of haven't looked back our niche is basically like based on true story narrative films so we always yeah. look for something where it's always like rooted in the truth 
And I think that so much comes from our journalism and documentary background, and then allowing us to have the freedom to move forward from there. So those careers you kind of left, was it surface level? Was it mundane? What about it that's, that's so different from what you're doing now? Yeah, I think, you know, you're forced to tell a story in 30 seconds or, you know, and it's just looking for the easy sound bite, what will get people to watch, but it's not really telling a great story and, and visually as well. You know, it's like it's running gun, you're going out, you're grabbing sound bites and doing whatever. And, and as a local television reporter, you know, you come into someone's life on their worst day. And over and over and over again, whether it's a house fire or a murder or, you know, you someone, there's a horrible tragedy if I'm showing up. And I always felt like I shouldn't be the first one knocking on someone's door. It really should be a psychologist or a therapist or somebody else rather than me. And I always felt like I, um, I never felt good after doing those interviews. So I knew I had to leave at some point. Another big difference, obviously, is the, the quantity versus the quality. How do you guys choose subjects today? Like, how do you know this is the next documentary or this might be a good idea to turn to a feature? I mean, first of all, it's, you know, do we both agree? Mm-hmm. Like, because sometimes one of us will say, oh, look at this story in this, you know, paper yeah. or whatever. And it's like, uh, yeah, that's yeah. fine. If we're both like, wow, that's interesting then we do usually almost like test drive it with other people, talk to our friends. Yeah. You know, with Queen Pins, I remember telling people, yeah. you know, it's about these two women that counterfeit coupons and they would kind of laugh. And then you tell them, yeah. and, you know, it's like $40 million worth of counterfeit coupons and they're buying mm-hmm. sports cars and guns and all of these things. And you would see them perk up and be excited. And it's like, okay, maybe this is something we should pursue. Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, so much of it is, you know, Aaron and I come from different perspectives, right? I, I'm Indian American, my family and my culture is so different. Aaron was born and raised in rural Maine, but we know instinctually that if we both gravitate towards it, then there's a large audience that will also gravitate towards it too, because mm-hmm. we are whole, like exactly opposite of each other. <laughs> so but, if we like it, we know, oh, there's something here. Yeah. And a, a lot of our other scripts and screenplays we've written are much more dramatic. This is by far the most sort of commercial comedy that we've written, but it really stems from the true story. It just felt absurd with counterfeit coupons and postal inspector SWAT teams and loss prevention officers. It just felt like it, it should be a comedy. Mm-hmm. Did you look to other examples? So like coincidentally, I just watched Catch Me If You Can about a week ago. And some of that's there. It's kind of like a Coen Brothers comedy feel to it. Like you kind of mentioned just telling other people, it's got kind of a laugh to it. Like almost that is the tone. But how did you kind of start to figure out those pieces? And like, what is the feel of this movie going to be? Yeah. We definitely would look to Coen Brothers, Brothers, Burn After yeah. Reading, yeah. Like you say, catch me if you can, any sort of sort of heist scam movies. Mm-hmm. And then we looked at things like Thelma and Louise as well, because it's like, you know, to, we wanted to look at where the leads were empowered women trying to go off and do something. Right. What, what would happen if mm-hmm. Thelma and Louise was a comedy? Right, exactly. Tell me about these main characters. Like how accurate um, are these two roles where she like one woman's kind of dealing with identity theft, one woman is more of like a a loss of pregnancy or things that didn't work out in her life. But these are very kind of serious 
parts in the first half of this really comedic tone like how did you kind of find that balance with these characters I mean, I think on set, we're constantly telling them, like, you're not in a comedy, you're in a drama, mm -hmm. you know, your lives, every, every story beat in this story for you is dramatic. So, you know, I think in writing it, it's just like, we tend to move towards dramatic. And for us, comedy, we really don't respond to those broad comedies where things kind of go a little off the rails. It's much more grounded, authentic, absurd. That's where comedy lives for us. Life is absurd in so many ways. The most ridiculous things that actually happen in life usually end up being true. So for us, we always are like, well, play into the truth and honesty of it. And then you'll find the humor that comes from within. And I think even in movies, you know, we, we would laugh a lot more watching something like Goodfellas than a comedy, <laughs> you know, to us that like grounded, intense, yeah humor uh, always hits hard. Now we don't really know anything about the real woman. For us, it was really about what was this crime and we really wanted to tell our version of what these women could be like on this journey. And what we found was so many of my friends and family around me had had miscarriages and had tried multiple times to have babies and, and really struggled through that process. But we felt like we wanted to, and you know, really give heart and honesty to that process. And we felt the same way with the identity theft storyline. Like it's very hard in our society today, once you have your identity stolen, to be able to gain, gain your identity back and not have to live with the many consequences that come with that. And so we wanted to make those obstacles as real and honest as possible because there are so many people going through both those journeys. And I think when we developed Kristen's character, Connie, especially, we, you know, we had said, okay, we want to tell a story about these two women that feel very undervalued, uh, kind of like a coupon. They feel undervalued, discounted. And then we somehow stumbled across Olympic sports and we were like, what's the most undervalued Olympic sport? And then we found this race walking. But then that sort of led to her character because a lot of women who train for the Olympics have a lot of trouble conceiving mm -hmm. um, and child childbirth, all of that, all of the issues that come along with that. So her character sort of mm -hmm. developed organically as we started thinking about who this person was, this person who's super ambitious, but the thing that she gave everything to is taken away from her when she's still young. Like you can't be an Olympian forever. Mm -hmm. I think if you, um, and, and you'll see it through Queen Pins, we suddenly, we, uh, questions around social issues into our films um, and we never wanted to be on in your face but it's just really touching upon them. No, so, so, so to kind of elaborate on that do you often or for this story did you kind of talk about more of the metaphors and themes up front and then that developed a character as opposed to working backwards or did you also well these are you know probably the tent poles for the plot like how did you kind of start to do all this stuff? I mean, at first we had the framework, you know, we went to Phoenix, we talked with the detective who had actually worked on the case, the real case. Mm -hmm. So we had the framework of what the scam was. And then we were creating the characters to sort of live within that framework. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think, you know, it was that, I mean, what we realized just recently is, as we were trying to get another script financed and another movie made with a bigger budget, we were constantly going into rooms with financiers where we were told 
well, you don't have any value. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we like the people you have attached to this. We like the script, but you in the industry, you haven't done enough. You don't have any value. So then we started writing queen pins and it was just recently that we realized, oh, we wrote a story about these two women that felt like they had no value. And it really was channeling our feelings into these characters in a lot of ways. And, and also Vince and Paul's characters feel undervalued as well. You know, like Paul is this loss prevention officer and Vince, even though he's very put together within the world of law enforcement, postal inspectors are sort of undervalued. So then it felt like, oh, this is a real theme that works across all the characters. I think what was inspiring to us afterwards, now that we've stepped back from this journey is that, you know, in this movie, these two women find a loophole to succeed and realize their dreams. And finally for us in Hollywood, who knew it was gonna be Queen Pins that was gonna be the one that would really break us out in a meaningful way make the studios a profit, make everybody happy. And, you know, to us, it was like, and okay, change our value and change our value. As of five weeks ago, our value in this industry changed. What else did you guys do differently? I mean, did you pitch it differently? Um, did you have more of yourself invested? Did you go buy IP? Did you have to buy the rights to the story somewhere? How did all that kind of come to be? I mean, yeah. since it's really not based on the real people at all, we, the characters are complete creations. And, and, you know, there wasn't ever any sort of like GQ article about this or something. It was always just these little like AP News blurbs or, you know, Gita found the story on a coupon blog. Yeah, I mean, I literally, I mean, what, one thing that we should just say is that it's so hard in this day and age to really get the rights to an interesting story before a bigger production financier ends up scooping it up first, or they've already, it's already been optioned before it even gets into the magazine, which we quickly realized. When we would read features yeah. all the time and be yeah. like, oh, this would make a great movie. We're just reading it the day it comes out and yeah. oh, it's already yeah. optioned by Plan B or, yeah. Yeah. you know, George Clooney's company or whatever, yeah. they, they get scooped up fast. So for us, and because of our journalism background, we try to take deep dives wherever we can. And I somehow ended up on a coupon blog. I don't even remember how, but mm. I did remember reading that there were like three lines about this coupon scam that ended up, you know, being around $40 million. And I thought it was a joke at first. And I said, Aaron, look at this. And then it did happen to have the name of the detective on there in Arizona. And so we reached out to the detective and we were like, as soon as we talked to him, we were like, this is absolutely a story. And we were driving to Phoenix and sitting down with him. He was showing us, you know, some of the real counterfeit coupons and just taking us through that case. Uh, but, you know, there was no IP that needed to be bought and there, it wasn't based on any real mm -hmm people yeah. in that way so and, and just to say this movie has been was equally hard to get off the ground than any of your, our other projects it we lost it fell apart three, three times. times we every time we felt like we were about to go on this project the finance would fall apart because what we found out is you know a movie like this which we originally were supposed to have a 10 million dollar budget on we they would tell us well these comedies need to be made within a five million dollar budget but to pull that off, it meant we'd have to like slash 30 pages of our script to be able to get down to what everybody felt was an appropriate budget and schedule. And we just weren't willing to compromise on that. We have always said we'll never feel pressured into making a less than movie than what we feel should be out there. 
because you only have one chance to make that movie. And we don't want to ever live in regret knowing that we had to compromise so much that a lesser version of that movie now exists out there. In the bigger budget movies we've been trying to get off the ground, you know, we had them set up multiple times mm -hmm. with financing, but it would always be less than what we felt we needed to do it right. And again, we were just like, we're not going to compromise and make, you know, the version of this that in five years we, we won't be proud of. So mm -hmm. that was one reason why we set the last time um, this other project fell through, we said, okay, we're going to set that aside and we're going to make, we're going to write something that we feel like is maybe a little more commercial, mm -hmm. little smaller budget, which was queen pins, but yeah. something that we felt like we would at least be setting ourselves up to maybe get it off the ground easier with the hope of always coming back to the bigger budget movie after, which is what we're doing now. Tell me a little about um, more about your background as like kind of moving into like more fiction based filmmaking. What does your time look like? How much time goes into just researching different ideas? Do you have a pile of spec scripts that you might make in the future? Tell people a little bit about the stuff that they don't see on IMDb and that type of thing. Right. Yeah. For sure. Everyone is different. Like the, our first feature beneath the harvest sky you know, that's not based on a true story, but it's kind of based on a hundred true stories. Mm -hmm. um, takes place in Northern Maine and it's these two high school boys that are trying to escape their dead end town and get pulled into smuggling drugs, prescription drugs across the Canadian border. And, you know, when we decided to tackle that, we moved to Maine and we spent a year and a half just going to that area talking with people, interviewing them, almost like we we're making a documentary and then writing the script from that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And then some of our other movies. Yeah, like with Queen Pins, obviously we did some extensive research on just really understanding of the coupon world because we weren't familiar with the coupon world. So really taking a deep dive into that and understanding the psychology of coupons and how coupons are really the foundation that keeps our economy running. Because the, with a coupon, you know, it takes away the question, is it a need or a want? You know, with the coupon, it essentially has a ticking time on it that says, uh, even if it's a want, I need it now. So that was a very interesting and, idea and concept to us as well throughout the movie. And we would read stories where, you know, a CEO comes to JCPenney and yes. decides to do away with coupons and almost bankrupts JCPenney. They lost $4 billion yes. because he got rid of coupons and tried to just do like everyday low prices. So we, you know, just reading about all of that and understanding that world. But then there's stuff like, you know, we have a, a project that's, that's untitled right now, but it's a true story of this investigative journalist in Boston who spent four years uh, investigating and exposing the Sackler family that owns Purdue Pharma, makers of OxyContin and something like that, which is, you know, about the op opioid crisis, but it's very much sort of like a spotlight model, like you're with this investigative journalist as he's uncovering things. We had worked with this journalist, David Armstrong, for quite a few years, just cultivating that relationship. But when things started happening in his story that we felt like were the third act of the film, we wrote that script in 12 days uh, because we sat down with him and we put every story beat up on a wall 
And then he went away and we're like, okay, well, while we have this in our heads, we need to get it out. Mm. So when you look at something like Beneath the Harvest Sky that we spent probably two years researching and writing to writing something in 12 days because it was just inside of us at that point. What I think what we realized is it was like marinating in us for a few years. But then when that third act started coming together and we could see all of the note cards on the board with all of our beats, we were like, okay, we know how to tell this story, but it is so complicated that if we don't tell it now, we're gonna forget how to tell that story. And in those 12 days, it was we were merciless with each other in terms of getting it down, writing it the right way, being able to create the characters that we needed to create. But it's one of the scripts we're the most proud of. I think it's one of our, it's probably one of our best scripts we've ever written. And, and I think a lot of our projects are complicated yeah. investigations. You know, another one, the one that we kept setting up and falling apart is called Crook County. And, you know, it's a true story about this young lawyer in 1980 Chicago who ends up going undercover for the FBI for four years and taking down a hundred crooked judges, lawyers, and cops that were all taking bribes and fixing cases in the Cook County court system. It's sort of a Donnie Brasco kind of movie with this young lawyer wearing a wire doing all of this stuff. But again, it's this complicated investigation where we were reading court transcripts and interviewing the real guy and the real people that worked around him. And, you know, so much research that went into it before we sat down to write it. I mean, we don't have a legal background, but it's, we were so fascinated with that story that we forced ourselves to understand the legal inner workings of this case so we could accurately tell that story. So, you know, for us, we're not daunted by the subject matter as long as we know we have to prepare ourselves for however long it's going to take to really live and know what that world is like. In the real lawyer who, you know, was 27 at the time, but now he's in his 60s, was writing a book, which we, you know, we have the rights to the book, but we were writing the script before he was writing the book. So we didn't have that to go off of. And it really was just all of these court transcripts and interviews. And then, you know, his book came out and we read it. We had already written the script, but it was you know, it was There's satisfying no <laughs> to be like, oh, we, we nailed it. And, yeah. you know, it looks like it would be based off the book, even though it was written before the book. Now that you, as you mentioned, kind of this story is, is giving you a little bit of notoriety. How do you see this story is right for this medium? Like, for example, they just made that the Doctor of Death, True Stories, like a podcast, a miniseries, a, a movie, all, it's all these things at once. How did you know Queen Pens was perfect for this as opposed to a documentary? Or how do you kind of make some of those decisions like that? Yeah, I mean, for a documentary, the character, the, the real life people have to be so compelling that you mm -hmm. want to go on that journey with them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this Queen Pens is a perfect example. Like we just felt like we, we have no idea who these women are. The access to it, what we needed to get was going to be very challenging. Access is key with any documentary as well. Like, do you For have sure. access to the people? Exactly. And um, to us, it's like, if you don't have the most compelling people within that story to be able to tell it, making a documentary is so hard. You know, you're going on a journey with an unknown ending and you're following these subjects. You know, we made the way we get by. It's one of the most proud films. I'm most proud of that film, I should say. And 
that took five years to make. And we had no idea three years into it, if we were making the right decision, spending all of this time making this film, because, you know, people in the industry would say, stop making it. Nobody's going to see this documentary. But Aaron and I believed in our core that there's a huge audience for this film and this film needed to be told and it was going to touch people on an emotional level. And when that film did come out, it accomplished those goals. But we had to really believe that that story was going to have a meaningful impact, and it did. We've had to continually just bet on ourselves and trust our instincts, yeah. because all along the way, I think we're told, you know, this isn't mm -hmm. a commercial story, or this is, you know, you're making a mistake, or like, you really have to get used to rejection and doubt, people, uh -huh. people doubting you and just pushing through that and believing and betting on yourselves over and over. Yeah, this industry, it's totally true. What did William Goldman say? That nobody knows anything in this business. Yeah, that's very, very true. They, yeah. Many people know less than that. Yeah. Yes. Did you guys find anything particularly difficult about moving into features? Like was dialogue a surprise for you or did you kind of have enough? Like what was different about it, I guess? I mean, I think when we wrote Beneath the Harvest Sky, which was the first one we did, like for us, um, it was really working very hard to get dialogue to feel as natural as possible. And, mm -hmm. and then, you know, I think comedy is what's known for improv. Everybody looks to like sort of Judd Apatow comedies or something, but we, improv we improvised more in that, which is a very dramatic, gritty, you know, rural movie, we improvised much more in that than we did with Queen Pins. Yeah. And we were just searching for honesty, you know, and we would talk with the actors a lot about, you know, we have this script, everybody's here because they love the script, but we're not precious to the words now as we put director hats on. Like now let's find the most honest version of every scene. And we would let them explore a lot. And, you know, that movie is probably like, 30 or 40% improvisation where Queen Pins is maybe like 85% scripted. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah. with each story, I think it's, it's different, but with dialogue, I feel like we pride ourselves on trying to create dialogue that feels very natural. That's, you know, how do you hide the exposition? Well, how do you yeah. uh, give each person like a real distinct voice? I think one thing that Aaron and I love to do, and we've been training ourselves for this, is we love to listen. Like we will not eavesdrop, but like we're in a cafe, we're yeah, eavesdropping. I guess it is. Okay, we are eavesdropping. We love when we're on hikes, hearing how people will say say very specific things in their tone, in their pacing of how those words come out. And we there, love there's nothing better than just some yeah. random out of context blurb that you hear as somebody passes you by and you just want to know like what came before it and what's coming after it exactly and so we love writing those little bits and details that we hear and we know somewhere in a script we're going to incorporate that in but that's just real and honest dialogue and so to us it's like well we need to do that in our scripts as well so we will write different dialogue and then Aaron and I will read it back to each other. And I have a terrible way of reading things back where Aaron's like, stop reading it. Let me read it. Because... Well, we're really more acting it, <laughs> yeah. I think. And, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
but it also helps us know when we're saying it, if it feels real and honest to how someone would say it, or is it just really because we need to get this piece of information out? So, you know, one thing that's important in our process as writing is we never will put any word in our script unless we both agree on it. And we'll have deep arguments over the word and sometimes because we want to make sure in that dialogue or in whatever we're writing that it feels perfect to what we want to say and convey. So, but then I think what we're, what we succeed at is once we become the directors, we're yeah. not precious about what we wrote. Like in the writing process, we are so precious about it, trying to get everything right. Then when the actors come on board, the first thing we tell them is, look, it's impossible to get this dialogue to be as real and authentic as regular people talk. So if making it your own words, if you can make it feel more honest, more truthful, that's fine. Uh, we're not precious about it. So it is this balance of, we wanna create the best foundation possible, the best blueprint possible for our movie. And then we want to build off of that and not be, you know, adhere just to that. If it's like, hey, what if we do this? It's like, oh, that's, that's better than the foundation we build. And then when we're directing and we're listening to how that actor chooses to convey those words, Aaron and I are behind two separate monitors because we don't wanna be influenced by each other she's laughing at something or crying or yeah. I don't, I don't, yeah. I, I want to yeah. watch it and yeah. have her watch it. Separately. And I'm a very much an emotional storyteller. So I know if I'm feeling something in a scene or if I'm more importantly, if I'm not feeling something in a scene, then something isn't right. And usually it's either in the dialogue of it or the setup of it, there's something always wrong. So then what we do is we then go back to each other and take a beat and are like, well, how, how do we, how do we with our actor, find the most honest and truthful moment here because that's where it all comes back down to is, is it honest and is it real? And we always tell our actors, the greatest gift we can give you is that Aaron and I are two bullshit meters. We can tell you if we believe it or not. And if we believe it, then we're on the right journey. And we never move forward unless we're both happy. We would never move forward with just one of us yeah. thinking, no, this is great. And the other one being like, ah, oh, there's an issue. We'll just do um, one or two more. How do you, so I want to go back to something you said earlier. A lot of this comedy is behavior based. Is that also on the page or do you guys just have a, maybe one or two long conversations about that character with that actor and let that person run with it? How do you kind of, how does that make it way to the screen? I mean, I think it's in the scripts usually because we also want to build the world around them and have it be, have it all fit together. You know, like mm -hmm. somebody like Paul's character, you know, there's a lot of talk of like who that person is, what's in his apartment, what, you know, is important to him. And we have these conversations. And then the great thing is to then collaborate with the actors. And suddenly Paul comes in and he has his own ideas. And he's saying, you know, I think he's a guy who would tell you all about uh, the best place to go vacation, but he's never been there. He's just read a book about it, you know? And so he's now bringing this, this perspective to it that we didn't have. And then we're riffing back and forth. And we always in prep want to work with each of them and kind of take their, 
their thoughts in and incorporate them in. We're always rewriting the script up until you know you're shooting it. Um, if there's little tweaks that can be made to incorporate their ideas in, yeah, we had a great you know for because we were shooting the height of the pandemic in Los Angeles, we couldn't prep in person with anyone. So with Vince and Paul, we had these long Zoom sessions that were like four hour marathon sessions each time for multiple times. And through that, Vince came up with this idea about a letter and we were laughing. Like as a postal yeah. inspector, yeah. could he carry around this old, you know, World War One letter with him? and? You know, we were laughing at that. And it was so much to his character and it said so much about the post office and the importance of the post office, but it also said so much about what it means to get a letter in the mail from someone because it means that they're thinking of you, that they love you. And it's being protected by the United States post office when it comes to you because no one's reading that letter, but you never know who's reading your email. <laughs> and it was all of these different layers. And we were like, oh, that's brilliant. And we were like figuring out how we could incorporate it into their scenes. And we think it really it, And then our, our friend was like, you know, my grandfather fought in World War I and actually would write letters to my grandmother. And he's like, and I still have some of those. So it's like, we got his letters and we were basing these real letters, you know, we we're basing it off of these real World War One letters, and it just happened organically. And then also Kristen and Kirby, they would they would get together. They're such good friends, and they would talk through their characters, and then we would get together with them, and they would kind of present us what they were thinking about scenes, and we'd go back and forth. And it was a very collaborative process, considering our entire prep was over Zoom. <laughs> I think we're out of time. I usually like to kind of just wrap up with like any little bit of encouragement or motivation you guys might have for novice writer directors trying to break in today. I mean, don't give up. Just know the rejection is out there, but eventually you'll find the right people who will believe in you and will champion you and support you and will allow you to make the what you want to make creatively. But also the most important thing in writing a script is finishing it. We, we always look at every script that we finish, we have created another asset for us. You know, so a spec script, yeah, nobody's paying us to do it, but we know we get done writing it and it's like, oh, this is another asset that we now own. Um, and that's very important. You know, we, like you say, we do have these other spec scripts waiting and to us is just like assets sitting there and, you know, oh, this one, what is this worth now? Uh, so, you know, finishing a script, an unfinished script can do nothing for you, but a finished script can open up, you have, you never know where it could lead. 100%. And, you know, finding the right writing partner for you makes a huge difference, right? Like Aaron and I are best friends and we make each other laugh and we enjoy being pushed and encouraged by the other person to be better in our personal life and in our writing and in our directing and finding the right partner that's willing to sit with you day in, day out and challenge ideas so that the best idea gets on that piece of paper is the most inspiring. So it's a bit like marriage therapy sometimes when we're sitting down to write because uh, you know you have to prep yourself. You have to do like meditation and hiking and do all of this stuff to get in the, my, the right mindset to be able to sit down and be ready to have someone challenge your ideas. And you need to also be ready to defend it. 
but through that process, knowing that you're going to have something hopefully really special out of it is the most exciting part to us. And also believe in yourself. You know, when we handed the script for Queen Pins to our agents, the first thing they said back to us after reading it is, we didn't know you were funny. And, you know, to us, we'll, we will let people decide if we're funny or not. But, yeah. you know, it doesn't even matter, you know, the people around you, what, what they believe in. If you believe in yourself as you're writing it, I yeah. think you'll be, you'll be in good, good shape. Yeah, exactly. Thank you for tuning in to the show. If it's your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button and visit my new website for information on the YouTube channel, the blog, the podcast, and my new book, Ink by the Barrel, which takes advice from these 200 plus interviews and more at brockswinson.com. You'll see the link in the show notes. Thanks again.